Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One podcast with your host. Juan Ayala. And like you said, when they're when they're pondering on these images, the way that Jung was was practicing active imagination was to let an image come to you. Uh, and he actually said to do this when you're in a bad mood or when you have like some sort of overwhelming emotion i think a lot of times that would be like anger you know like you're really pissed off and he said that's actually a really good time to, to do active imagination just to sit down and be like all right what is you know what image comes in my head with this anger you know where does this lead me some sort of picture in your head obviously the, Al- the alchemist had these pictures in front of them they didn't have to necessarily dream them up but he would sit there and let something come to him and then like you said he would enter into the image the process of active imagination is not just to watch a movie in your head it's to actually you know, break the barrier and step into you, know, you see the image you let it sort of uh, animate and then you step into it as a subject back to another episode of the one-on-one podcast your host as always juan make sure to follow the show social media at the one-on-one podcast pretty much any social media platform follow the youtube instagram all that stuff if you're listening to this on the rss feed take two seconds leave a five-star review if you're listening to this on youtube or wherever thumbs up comment Share with your family and friends. And for those that want some more, patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast and all that good stuff. Today we have a 
scholar, a homunculologist himself. We're going to be talking about a new new type of homunculus tonight. We're joined by Professor Longo from the Longo Bros. What's up, dude? What's going on, man? How are you? Doing all right. It's been a little bit since we got together. So I figured, hey, let's do this again. You hit me up with a new species of homunculi that I was very excited that we're going to probably be talking about tonight. But what what have you been up to, dude? What have you been researching? What have you been reading? What have you been... Um, What rabbit holes have you been going down? Well, uh, I told you last time you had me on by myself that I started a publishing company called Galaclass Books. And... I've mainly been researching for the first book that we're putting out. Uh, it's a collection. It's going to be called Monad. And it's a collection of Neoplatonist writings. Uh, so there's Plotinus and Porphyry and Proclus in there. Um, and I've, you know, I can't put the book out without having read all of it and really, you know, uh, diced it up and digested it. So I've mainly been having to do that. Um, as a little bit of a homework assignment, but it's been really fulfilling and rewarding. I'm excited. The book should probably be out in the next like, six weeks, something like that, two months. So, yeah, that's mainly what I've been up to. I've been reading other stuff too, though. But did you have primarily. these, did you translate these or were these already translated and you're just printing them? Yeah, so these are the uh, top tier translations uh, by Thomas Taylor. So they were done in the late 1700s. And he was a living Platonist. Like, he was not a scholar. Um, he was not, like, a professor of, or of ancient Greek or something. Um, he was a Platonist himself. So he was a monist Platonist, like, through and through. Um, and he also is considered the greatest translator of ancient Greek to English ever. Um, so his translations are underappreciated in the modern era and under printed for sure uh and if i showed you a side by side with like the modern translations you would laugh i mean it's that's almost hilarious this guy's the guy to be reading if you're reading plato aristotle and the neoplatonists because he he translated all their complete works so go check him out and obviously check our book out because it's all his translations yeah this guy i came across another Thomas Taylor that mm-hmm. did that book that I had, I think I talked to you about it. There's another Thomas Taylor of the, a voyage to the war. Let me see here. Voyage to the, whoa. Voyage to the world of Cartesius. There was also another Thomas that Taylor that here. See, video on that, right? Yeah, I did. A, we did a whole video on it. So in English by T. Taylor. But when I first saw that, hmm. I, I thought that it was right the Taylor, right? Yeah. And apparently, and it's not. apparently, it's not because. Interesting. Let's see here. He was he 17th century. It was um, no more 18th century. So there's this guy here. So interesting. Also translating. See here, it's in the name. I think, yeah, there's something, uh, dare I say, talismanic of this Thomas, the the T T, 
name, yeah. right? This guy was also a priest. So there's something definitely going on with that name. Yeah. And I want to say it was this cat, or it might have been, might have been our other guy, Taylor, Taylor Thomas. Hmm. Oh, here, yeah, <laughs> Taylor Thomas. My bad. Whoops. Uh, that's all good. So same, same thing. Same thing. Same thing. So again, this there's definitely something about the TT. So it was this yeah. guy here, very interesting. And, and his father was known as a friend to Puritans and silence ministers. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. So this was the guy that translated that work of Cartesius, uh, which is a story essentially about Rene Descartes. You can check it out. I think it's, want to say it's the occult book club number 10 which dude i'd love to have you on that show with like a an obscure book that you've come yeah, across yeah got plenty i would love to do that and we can read, read it break it down but this book here the interesting part about this book is that it, it's essentially a story about how how Rene Descartes had figured out how to project his consciousness outwards into outer space. And this is actually the first time ever that the term outer space is used in the sci-fi sense. And this is, was published in 1694, I think was the English version. And the interesting part about it, because you talked about monadology, right? And the mm -hmm. monads. Well, in my studies of, right, my, the various alchemical rabbit holes that I find myself going down, I actually found out that the right the father of modern day binary code, Gottfried Leibniz, what who yep. wrote Monadology, he yep. was actually going around and he was kind of sort of obsessed with stories of transmutation. And yeah. and there, have you heard about that before? I've heard about that. Yeah. Well, and um. You know, his contemporary, like Newton, was himself a like full-on occultist, hermeticist. Um, so it wasn't, seems to, you know, sort of be the norm at that at that point in time. Um, and they're they're definitely hard to say if that was what was aiding them in their discoveries, or uh, if they were maybe just unearthing stuff that had been around in more like in secret in the Rosicrucians and things like that. It's very possible, I mean, especially with Leibniz. Because that's something that has always interested me. There there are, right, there's these works. So this book here from 16, whatever, 1694, whatever it was. Yeah, so printed by, for Thomas Benn in 1694. This is supposedly a story, right? It's a right. story from another guy with two first names. So you have Gabriel Daniel, <laughs> so very biblical. And then yeah. writing Taylor Thomas is kind of sort of two first names mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, but this idea of, Car you know, Descartes, and I think that he was like onto something. Now, you can't really find anything relating him with like alchemy. But yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard. Have you ever read The Secret Notebook of Rene Descartes? Have you, have you ever read that? No. So we carry it in the bookstore. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've seen you talk about it. And I always look at it, like I'll see it on the shelf and be like, well, I'm going to visit that one day because it's really, I, I know a lot though about him because I've watched your episode uh, on Descartes. I don't forgot who you did it with, but. With um, Thomas. I, 
Yeah, I, yeah, I watched that one, and that was fascinating. I mean, the dreams he's having, visions, like I mean, all all that kind of stuff is incredible. Are you talking about the one that I did with with the stoic stoicism guy? Um, I forget his name. Jeez. Oh, I, I don't remember who you did it with. But the it's name something. escapes me. Yeah, I did a whole episode on Descartes. It was only a section of Descartes though, because Descartes' philosophy is so vast, and it's it's another one that's always like captivated me and i feel like there's more to his story than what mainstream history has led on and this book here a voice to the world of cartesius really filled in some gaps as to the story of Cartesius. and, and you, you got to read that book the the secret notebook of descartes it's such yeah. a mind-blowing read yeah. it's like banger after banger after banger after banger and then the fact that he was messing around with automaton too. I don't know if you ever heard that story that he had like a, a robotic daughter essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. Because back then they had this whole thing with automatons in churches, bro. Uh, they yeah. had like entire devils that are, and let me pull up this picture here of the, like this devil that was, and I think Prague was known for that too. The yeah, they were like mechanical birds and clocks yes. and things. Well, when you had me on and we were talking about the Byzantine Empire, I remember telling you because people don't know that that the Byzantines had automata. Um, I mean, a thousand years, more than a thousand years ago, um, which is insane. They had lions like next to the throne of the emperor that would roar. They had um, how terrifying little, this thing is golden birds and things i mean it's unbelievable yeah that thing is horrifying you're kind of cranking his dick here bro like they, they put it right there where a schlong would be you think that was done yeah. on purpose no no i'm kidding 100 percent on purpose no way they you, you could put that anywhere or you could put it on the back and they put it on the front right where his, his yeah. wiener would be <laughs> so this thing here, let me find where the, what's the name of it? So Italian, so it's from the 16th century and it's from Wonderkammer of Ludovico Setala. So Tamata were theologically and culturally familiar things with which one could be on easy terms. They were funny, sometimes body, and they were everywhere. Mechanical devils were rife, poised in sacrities. How do you say that word? Sacrities? Sacristies? Man. Now we're just getting warmed up, ladies and gentlemen, so we're going to get some words wrong. They made horrible faces, howled, and st stuck out their tongues to instill fear in the hearts of sinners. The Satan machines rolled their eyes and flailed their arms and wings. Some even had movable horns and crowns. A muscular crank operated devil with sharply pointed ears and wild eyes remains in residence of Castellos for Seco in Milan. And this is an interesting family too. This for the Sforza family, which uh, Catherine of uh, Sforza, she was also one of the first women alchemists. I'm going to mm -hmm. be doing an episode on her soon. She has a really interesting history. And interesting. yeah, this, this whole automata of thing. And, and people really thought that this was a lot of people thought that these things were actually possessed by demons. Yeah. I would believe it if I was, if it was the 1500s. 
Let's look crazy. Up, let's look up. Clues. You know, um, we never talked about this too when we talked at the uh, talked about Prague. Is the infant Jesus of Prague? It's like a famous <laughs> famous statue. I don't think we talked about it. No, we didn't. Is this? This looks like the cart. Hold up. Oh no. Ooh, this guy's deep. So, oh yeah, there's some stuff here. All right, so the infant Jesus. Yeah. Infant. Whoa, Jesus. That's, that's a good Wikipedia. If, if anyone's bored, just go read that Wikipedia page. This Dude. creepy little statue. Look how small it is, too. This With that thing, head. bro. Dude, the stories are wild. It's right. full on, like, we actually have a portrait of it in the store. Uh, and it definitely has, it has power, for sure. There's something to it. I don't know what what the power is, but it has some sort of gravity to it that's uh like portraits of it and things are very uh alluring what yeah it's odd and that statue uh they you know it's like a it's an icon because this is uh eastern christianity so they like pray to that and like offer devotions to it and stuff it's very much like idolatrous even though it's supposed to be jesus um and the stories on the wikipedia are wild like monks who hear it like talking to them in their head and like telling them to do stuff. Um, at one point it got destroyed in the 1600s. I think what I'm, this is all top of the dome, but 16 or 1700s. Yeah, it gets through the stories. Yeah. So it gets, um, it gets destroyed. Sorry if you can hear my dog squeaking. It's, boy, <laughs> it's probably annoying. So we have uh, here, because I remember you talking to me about that that day that I was at the store and I had looked it up briefly while we were there. So it's Niño yeah. Jesús de Praga, <laughs> 16th century wax-coated wooden statue of child Jesus holding a globus cruciger. <laughs> of course. And this is yeah. crazy, bro, because I was, I was watching a documentary on Prague the other day. Cause I want to, yeah. I want to go, bro. I want to go to Prague. Prague is like one of those places that it's, it is magical. Right. And, and I didn't know that the origins of the crater, cause you gave me that piece of Moldavite, which Prague is yeah. rich in Moldavite. The, the lure of that crater at Prague that hit and spread right. that Moldavite around supposedly yeah. that meteor or that asteroid whatever you want to call it was a stone that fell off the crown of lucifer and it fell down to earth and it crashed where prague is right yeah so <laughs> wow Steinarian stuff sounds like yeah. but yeah they um, it did it created the prague basin that prague is in like it's a big valley um, and it whole it's it has moldavite everywhere. It's like it's like in the soil of Prague. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. But so the infant Jesus gets destroyed, and it's missing its arms and pieces. And it's one day there. I think it was like in a pile of rubble or something. And um, one of the monks, because this is after a war, one of the monks is just walking around. They're like trying to rebuild the church or whatever, and he hears a voice in his head like calling out and it's saying uh give me give me back my arms like put me back together 
and put me, you know, like find me basically. It's so creepy when you think about it. Um, even though this is supposed to be like a Jesus statue. I mean, Kima, it sounds like. It sounds demonic. Yeah, it sounds like a little demon baby, like, give me my arms, you know, like a little Chucky thing. And basically, yeah. And then ever since he, they did put it back together, um, and it, it's still like worships by people from all over the world that go and visit Prague. But there's so many other stories. That's like the first one. But there's so many other stories of, yeah, visions and um, hearing it talk like in your head and things. I mean, really, really trippy. So we have, uh, is this from, is there a book on it? Right. There's a book on it, right? The history. So one legend says that a monk in a desolated monastery somewhere between Cordoba and Seville had a vision of a little boy telling him to pray. The monk had spent several hours praying and then he made a figure of the child. And this is so weird because they use it for rituals too. And the house of Habsburg began ruling the kingdom of Bohemia in 1526. The kingdom developed close ties with Spain. The statue first appeared in 1556 when Maria Maximiliana Marinquez de Lara and Mendoza brought the image to Bohemia upon her marriage to that nobleman of this guy's name, Vistrislav of Perstein, an old legend in the Lopkowski Lopkowski family reports that Maria's mother, Doña Isabella, had been given the statue by Teresa of Avila herself. Maria received the family heirloom as a wedding present. In 1587, she gave it to her daughter, Polixena of Lobkowsk, whatever, as a wedding present. And then here we go. Well, give me the give me the juice. So the oratory, which is an interesting thing with alchemists as well, is placed in oratory. And the monastery of Our Lady of Victory, Prague, where special devotions to Jesus were offered before it twice a day. What a weird thing to do! That is, yeah. that is, dude, that is so. It's so strange. Like, what is going on? And that's and even the ties to uh, Teresa of Avila. She's a super interesting character. So if it did come from her, that would be even crazier, because she she's a Christian mystic uh, nun. Really. Yeah, she's really important. Yeah, uh, and she, she claims to have like two straight years of visions of Jesus, like in the body, um, like all kinds of crazy like imagery and stuff. And she has there's books about her and stuff that are that are good. And it's another rabbit hole. But so, if it's tied to her, I mean, that's even crazier. Because you know, here's the thing with with certain denominations, right? You have Catholicism, you have Christianity, you have all these different versions. And when I grew up, right, Christian, this was all demonic. You couldn't worship idols, all this other stuff. And you have certain denominations of certain sects of, yeah. of whatever that do worship these things. And, and what I'm seeing here is a pattern of like, for example, this Teresa of Avila person who was a Christian mystic, which we know... Christian mysticism is tied to the Rosicrucian movement and all these different, right? Sure. All these different occult orders that, that, that stem from that same ideology, essentially. And what I see going on here is that perhaps these people, like the first, the first in their order, if you will, 
they had knowledge and practices that perhaps weren't passed down because if you look at like nuns and and monks and all these they're like secret societies essentially right and but the knowledge i guess i guess gets this is my personal opinion gets diluted within these organizations and they're not going to pass down this sacred knowledge of maybe perhaps i don't know imbuing this little statue with a spirit of some angel or something because what else are you gonna bro what else are you gonna do with it it's like the genie in the bottle the genie's inside this thing he's trapped and it's like what was that i just finished seeing something where i was reading something where where they were trying to convince oh beetlejuice right beetlejuice tells you like hey say my name three times and i'll da 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 it's like you have to you have to do what that thing says to bring it into this realm and it's right. like i saw this reel about it. it was like she would say beetlejuice beetlejuice and then because like at, at the end she wouldn't say like the third beetlejuice so he couldn't come into existence or whatever but it just it it makes me think of that and it, it being some sort of talisman and i've yeah. never heard of this teresa character oh yeah she's she's a big time and steiner rudolf steiner who's a christian mystic um he also had things where he said uh, certain portraits of the madonna so of uh mary and jesus uh had healing powers like just on their own as a painting um and so it's a similar similar sort of thing and he was a rosicrucian it's very possible that that sort of uh, the, these Christian mystical practices were passed down in, in secret and they're, you know, they're ecstatic. So they rely on mystical experience, ecstasy, nice. um, you know, things that maybe aren't for the masses or aren't easy to convey in language and put into a book, you know, um, Jacob uh, Berm and all kinds of other people who have had these mystical experiences as, as Christians you know, and with Christian imagery and everything, and they kind of just get ignored by the mainstream. But it does exist, <laughs> absolutely, uh, without a doubt. So, though there are no written historical accounts establishing that Teresa of Avila ever owned the famous infant Jesus of Prague statue, according to tradition, such a statue is said to have been in her possession. Teresa is reputed to have given it to a noble woman traveling to Prague the age of the statue dates to approximately the time as Teresa it has been a thought that Teresa carried a portable Jesus or portable statue of child, the child Jesus whenever she, wherever she went the idea circulated in the earth so you, you touched on something that's important to these this sect of religion for lack of a better term where they are very heavily influenced by imagery right so they are you ever heard of the Rothschild canticles you ever looked at that book before Rothschild canticles i don't think so so it's an illumin it's an illuminated manuscript i believe is what it is and right it's at yale of course right because Yale has all the cool stuff in there yeah and this is has one of the weirdest depictions of I call it Cthulhu tentacle Jesus because check this out, bro. This is a depiction of the Trinity. Okay. They are depicting, let me find here a good, let me find a good picture of it. They are depicting 
so check this out it's like almost like a wormhole butthole looking thing with like some tentacles coming out of it and then yeah. right here check this out so this is supposed to be rays of light of course but it looks just really weird and what these plates were serving as they were just that they were devices for you to meditate upon for yeah. you to be able to become one with the source so to get to come together with the trinity right to get closer with the godhead but check this out it's like very very bizarre imagery yeah very weird right well if you think about jacob berm too the christian mystic his books are filled with imagery um and they are like you know a lot of people think that it's probably because these sort of experiences cannot be put into language. You know, they're like the, un they are the unspeakable. The unconscious. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just outside of what we can describe. We don't have words for what you're seeing. Yeah. You know? And like a dream too, when you come back from the dream, it's very difficult to describe what, what it was, mm -hmm. you know, you sort of forget. Um, and so I think images are used a lot of the time to convey that. Um, yeah, I mean, T Terrence McKenna thought that we were going to have an archaic revival um, through psychedelics, which would bring <laughs> us back, which would bring us back to a sort of ecstatic, mystical based religion um, based on psychedelics, which would sort of tear the fabric of um, literacy and language and like this sort of um, cage that we're in i'm not saying it's negative but that western and eastern culture now is is tied into you know it's all uh print-based literacy uh linguistics everything like that and we have very little relationship with like the shamanic the mystical mm -hmm. experience you know and he thought that psychedelics were going to bring us back to that and through doing that that they were going to sort of melt language and we were going to come up with some sort of new uh, form of language using images, um, which is, by the way, images are so much more effective than language. Um, mm. They're intuitive and you can show something and just immediately know what it is uh, instead of having to read a whole, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it, maybe it's through symbol or language or something like that, but he, he, he foresaw it changing. I want to point out too that this book is read. By the way, the Rothschilds canticle with the the Rothschilds, of course, right there. Yeah. They're one of the most powerful families in the world. They have the, some of the craziest books, bro. And well, the, you have the, um, the Red Book by Jung. And exactly. And then you have the Book of the Law, which is also red and gold by Crowley. Really? Oh, yeah. They, they look exactly the same, almost same coloring. If you look it up. Like a first, a first edition? Like a first edition? Okay. Uh, no, that one right there, like the normal... The one almost everyone has is that one. Wow. Yeah. And then you look up the red book and it's like the same thing. <laughs> Do you think maybe this was Crowley's red book? Because I mean, they were, they were contemporaries, weren't they? They were contemporaries. Uh, I, I go deep on both of them. I'm actually reading the red book right now. Ooh, you poor soul. Um, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you've read it, but it's incredible. I've read it, it, dude, I don't know about you, man, but like I've been I've been reading some heavy stuff. I've been reading some. I started a new series called the the completion of the Falconelli affair, and 
every different episode is a different aspect of Falconelli. Yeah. And I've been reading just like the heaviest stuff. Cause I, I, last night I was actually reading Mary friends and the idea of the, of uh, Gerard Dorn and how they were able to come up with the idea of synchronicities and the parallels between alchemy and the Jungian aspect. But these are things that when you read it, right, for example, like the Fulcanelli stuff, when I'm reading that, I can't sit and, and, and read a hundred pages. I got to take it like 10 pages at a time, sit down, digest what I'm reading. And the same thing with like the Jungian stuff. I got to pick it up, read five pages. If I can even get to that, because there's, it's just so mind blowing and so mind numbing of the concepts yeah. that you're learning. It's like, wait, it's too much to take in at one time, yeah. you know? And I think it that's, is. that's one of the things that's really turn. It hasn't, it kind of turned me off at first with young, but I feel like there are certain things that you might not resonate with because you're not at that level yet. Right. There's levels to this. And there's certain things that you can't just jump in. It's like, Oh, you want to learn about the occult. You want to learn about and like, it's like, no, you have to work your way up little right. by little to get to that. So, you know, you start off with like the right, secret teachings of all ages, and then you can jump into right the infant Jesus of Prague, perhaps being some sort of vessel for a demonic entity, right? Yeah. Sort of things like that, but you got to start off slow and work yeah. your way up into yeah. that realm of things. Sure. Yeah. I've, I think I've worked my way up, up there. Um, and the red book to me, I'm almost done with it. I've been reading it for a few weeks. And to me, it's a modern holy book, um, without a doubt. I don't, I don't see how, yeah, I don't see how it's not. Um, I mean, in terms of the last hundred, hundred years, it's about all we have. Um, it is absolutely like astonishing. I've been blown away. Um, it's, it has adventure to it through the stories it's telling, like the dreams and visions. It has all the mysticism and, metaphysics and even religion philosophy that you could ask for i mean it's really really rewarding i definitely definitely recommend it i can't believe how mystical he was so i knew the red book was yeah i knew i knew obviously i knew what it was i had had a copy for years i just hadn't read it um i read a bunch of his other stuff but i'd always had heard and i just hadn't done the research i had heard that he you know he wrote it later in his life and, and he got a little bit trippier, a little bit more mystical uh, towards the end. And I was like, and I knew that it was active imagination and like automatic writing, things like that. And I was like, okay, like, you know, little mystical experiments. Like, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't sound maybe like that interesting. And I dove in a few weeks ago and I was shocked. I mean, just in the preface, in the intro, they tell you like he was working on this in 1914 which is way early in his career. I mean, and then, you know, he died in the fifties. So that's telling you he had been working on this on the side his entire life. And I didn't know that at all going into it. And so that was already like a shock. I was like, what? Like he was doing this the whole time. Um, and then, you know, getting into it was just a, like blew my socks off. I mean, I had no idea he was a full on mystic. I mean, yeah, at, like as crazy as we've had in the last hundred years, Jung is at the top. He's known as a psychologist, but 
all of his psychology, which is what you know, find out through the book, all of his psych- psychology and his theories were informed through mystical vision, dream, you know, encounters with his own soul, with the devil, and you know, all these crazy stories. Uh, I mean, definitely encourage people to go. It is tough. Like you're saying, it's not something I would start out with. Um, but if you've done, you know, if you if you educated yourself, I would go check it out because it's pretty, pretty insane. That's one of the things I love about Young, where it what it is a an academic approach to occultism, which is essentially what he was doing. And he was doing what do you think that right? Because towards the end of his life and I'm going to bring some stuff up here. He had even right the the stone right the the cube with the little homunculus on it, which mm-hmm. I'll bring up here because it's, it's linking into like some other stuff that I've been because he was obsessed with alchemy, right? He, yeah. he was obsessed with alchemy. Yes. A lot of the ideas that he got he got from alchemy, and mm-hmm. he believed that alchemists were causing they were, they were like the first help, the first self help people essentially of of history and i stumbled across where i was doing some theatrum chemicum studies and i stumbled across this gerard dorn guy because i was doing a trans i've been there's something about like the the genesis commentaries that really interest me and a lot of them haven't been translated so i was i translated one from the theatrum chemicum and i did a whole episode on it this gerard dorn guy which is like the super obscure alchemist who was responsible for translating a lot of Paracelsus work into what we know today, right? From German to Latin. And uh, apparently he was one of the most cited alchemists by Young. It was the the most cited alchemist by Young. And when he was traveling in in India or whatever it was, he he carried the Theatrum Chemicum around with him and he studied specifically Gerard Dorn's work. And from Gerard Dorn's alchemical work was what helped him come up with this active imagination or synchronicities or whatever it was. A lot of the ideas, bro, stem from Dorn's work. So as I'm reading that, go ahead. I was going to say in the Red Book, um, just a quick uh, interruption. In the Red Book, he says that he believes, Jung believes that alchemists were practicing active imagination yes. in their lab in their laboratories. So the processes of um, almost you know coming up with a hypothesis or a way of getting something done chemically were exercising certain functions of the imagination and drawing you out into like this sort of um, deep imaginatory state. You know, almost almost like a daydream on steroids. Um, and in that state, things become mythical, whether you like it or not, and become archetypal. And that's the reason that they started taking forms of, you know, green lions and suns and all, you know, all those sorts of things, at least according to Jung, but you, you can go on. So from, from this guy's work, he developed a lot of these things and how you're saying, like, and that's the thing about alchemy that really gets me because it's like, there's so much... I believe that was an aspect of it. This idea of active imagination, quite mm-hmm. literally going into your head and having an entire, an entire 
laboratory or oratory, which is essentially what they wanted. Because a lot of these plates that you see of these alchemists, they were mandalas. They were for meditation. So the alchemist could go into that painting or that plate, whatever it was, and do his working while inside of there. But then we can't deny the fact of the practical side of alchemy. So the the not not the symbol okay we got the symbolic stuff cool but from alchemy like the actual either wet path or dry path whichever one you want to talk about like leibniz he was hanging out with the guy that created porcelain bro like yeah. the, the what what the commercial like commercial he started the first the guy that he was with started what was what we know today as like commercial porcelain development like the the production of porcelain and that came from a guy who allegedly had transmuted lead into gold with the powder projection and they the government was like yo get that guy like right now we need him right so because this guy did a transmutation in front of some other people the people ratted him out and then the king was looking for him like yo what are you doing you got to come with us because that's the whole thing with alchemists like you can't usurp the the crown or whatever it is you have to work for us if you're gonna have these secrets so a guy who performed a transmutation from his alchemical workings of practical alchemy helped develop the commercial trade of porcelain that we know today so it's like we can't ignore like the 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 actual aspect of of the you know without it Without a doubt, there were. It is the earliest form of chemistry. Their ideas about um, the scientific method, you know, about uh, experimentation. You know, those things all come out of alchemy. Modern medicine through Paracelsus, how he viewed uh, plants and materials and like the essences that they carried, um, led to modern medicine ph- pharmacology. With I mean, there's no, there's no taking that away. Um, and you know, it's, it's like anything else. There's a literal and and a symbolic, like the Bible can be, you know, what you want it to be symbolically, you know, the rabbit holes are endless there, or it can be literal, you know I mean? It could be a historical document. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they're both, they both coexist. Uh, it's neither one or the other. It's, it's like a Venn diagram of of both or something. And yeah, alchemy is, and like you said, when they're, when they're pondering, um, on these images, the way that Jung would, was practicing active imagination was to let an image come to you. Uh, and he actually said to do this um, when you're in a bad mood or when you have like some sort of um, overwhelming emotion. Uh, I think a lot of times that would be like anger. Uh, you know, like you're really pissed off. And he said, that's actually a really good time to to do active imagination, just to sit down and be like, all right, what is, you know, what image comes in my head with this anger? Um, You know, where does this lead me? Some sort of picture in your head. Obviously the the alchemists had these pictures in front of them. They didn't have to necessarily dream them up. Um, But he would sit there and let something come to him and then, like you said, he would enter into the image. So the pro- the process of active imagination is not just to watch a movie in your head. It's to actually you know, break the barrier and step into, you know, so you see the image, 
you let it sort of uh, animate and then you step into it as a subject and you experience that world and the alchemists were doing that. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, if you look at what they were doing and what Jung was doing with the red book, they're the same thing. I mean, of course that's where he's got it too. You know I mean? It's no coincidence. Yeah, no, it, it's, and that's why I feel like they were, they were doing the work on multiple dimensions. So this, this active imagination place, this other realm and this property had right Bollingen Tower, where or Bollingen, however you want to say it, he lived here. Right, every every wizard has a tower, no? Right, you got Bach yeah. Tower, got yeah. Ball, Bollingen Tower. So that's the publisher too that publishes most of Young and and all the unions is Bollingen. Interesting. And Owned by Princeton University, another Ivy Ivy League. The the thing that's interesting about this property is this this cubicle stone. Now, what's interesting about this stone is that it's got a homunculus on it. And mm. Telesphorus was a... So let me read the inscription. So, one side contains a, a quote taken from the Rosarium Philosophorum. Here stands the mean, uncommonly stone. Tis very cheap in price. The more it is despised by fools, the more loved by the wise. What what a weird, what, what a weird, and this and this text too is another weird alchemical text. But the more it is despised by fools, the more loved by the wise. So again, this idea of right, you get made fun of, like oh, alchemy. There was no such thing as a stone. It's like, well, how do you know, right? Like. Like, oh, yeah. you're an idiot for thinking that. It's like, well, the more it's despised by these fools, dude, that, that know no better than, right, the more loved by the wise, which the wise would be these, the people on the know. And, right, so the second side of the cube depicts, depicts a Telus Force figure, which uh, a homunculus bearing a lantern yeah. wearing a hooded cape, surrounded by the yeah. Greek inscription. The inscription says, time is a child playing like a child playing a board game, the kingdom of the child. This is Telesphorus, Telesphoros, who roams through the dark regions of this cosmos and glows like a star out of the depths. He points the way to the gates of the sun and to the land of dreams. Damn. That goes hard in the hard. And the second side also contains a four-part mandala of alchemical significance. The top quarter of the mandala is dedicated to Saturn, the bottom quarter to Mars, the left to Sol or Jupiter, and the right mm -hmm. to Luna Venus. So you have again this alchemical alignment, right? The 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 typical alchemical concoction, right? You always have Saturn, you always have Mercury as well. You have all these right in these plates, and the one of the inscriptions reads, "I am an orphan, alone. Nevertheless, I am found everywhere. I am one, but opposed to myself." I am youth and old man at one and the same time. I have no wow. neither father nor mother because I had to be fetched out of the deep like a fish or fell like a white stone from heaven and woods and mountains I roam, but I am hidden in the innermost soul of man. I am mortal for everyone, yet I am not touched by the cycle of the of aeons. Wow. Okay, so we got some 
we got some heavy stuff here. I am an orphan. So again, talking about homunculus, 100%. I am known neither father nor mother because I had to be fetched out of the deep like a fish or fell mm. like a white stone from heaven. And this is an interesting connection here because I just got done covering Polaris, which is this, or Polaria, the white stone. So I forget the name, but I'll, I'll look it up here in a second. Um, or you have the white stone, which is also one of the magnum opi or opus. Opi yeah. is opi plural, right? Opi. Yeah, I think so. The white stone creates silver, and then the right the red stone creates the gold. And this is very Paracelsian here. I'm hidden in the innermost soul of man. But one of the interesting parts of Dorn was Dorn said, turn yourself into the philosophical stone. So hmm. he took all of these like philosophical aspects and, or these practical aspects of like the work, like the, you know, the, the great work and turn into a more of philosophical thing. Right. So it was more in a spiritual inner working type of thing. And yeah. What's interesting about this Telesphoros guy is that, right, he is a minor child god of healing. And hmm. he was po a possible son of Asclepius, right? Which is, this is the guy that gets turned into the golden ass, no? I believe so, yeah. I, I think Asclepius has the, um, he has the medical symbol, I think. Or I might be thinking of another guy. There's a guy that, that got turned into the golden ass. Who's the guy? Yes. Asclepius has the, uh, what do they call that thing? Oh my God, I'm so stupid. It starts with a C. I know. Uh, Apuleius. This guy here. Okay, I got him wrong. But, yeah, not, not Asclepius. Apu this Apuleius guy. Anyways, okay. backtracking a little bit. Uh, so, we have this. He was the son of him, and then... Uh, right, frequently accompanied with Hygieia, which is, I guess, right, known for hygiene. That's where we get the word hygiene from, which is an interesting connection. <laughs> and he symbolized recovery from illness, as his name means the accomplisher or bringer of completion. In Greek, representations of him are found mainly in Anatolia and along the Nube. Now, what's interesting about this little guy is that have you ever heard of the let me find it here the gates of alchemy have you heard about that before let me find the name hold on the this is important because i gotta get this right because i came across this the other day Got the name of it. What's it called? The Porta Alchemica. So it's yeah. here we go. So the alchem I'm sorry, the alchemical door, or the alchemy gate, or magic portal. And now this is in Rome, and an interesting part about this. So this <laughs> this story goes deep, right? It's obviously has some inscriptions on it that are allegedly right to achieve the magnum opus there was a dude who had supposedly achieved the magnum opus and had left like some inscription so they took those inscriptions and they put them on this gate but 
whatever. That's not what interested me at first. When I first, when I first saw this, what stood out to me were these little dudes on the side or homunculus, if you will. Right. Sure. And these little dudes on the side here are represent representative of what's that of the, the, the Egyptian God, uh, it's a best. So right here, so-called best, which again, very, very interesting because it's the protector of household, mothers, children, and childbirth. Similarly hmm. to our boy over here, right? Minor God, child of healing, right? And there was also something else yeah. about childbirth as well. Let me see here. Temple, tell us. So, so there's actually temples dedicated to this guy, bro. This little... Yeah. He had a oh cult, right? Yeah, I mean, is isn't the infant Jesus a Prague of homunculus? <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it also has temples. You know, it also has a cult, basically. I mean, I, it's amazing. I didn't say that. You said yeah. that, but sure. Uh, <laughs> and so we have this weird little homunc god, right? That is supposedly like a, like a trolls movie. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's it's this little best thing, right, is is guarding this alchemical gate at this villa. Mm -hmm. Right? And this is linked, bro. This I went down this rabbit hole the other day. This it this has Kircher wrapped up in there, bro. The guy that yeah. supposedly uh, did the transmutation was a pupil of Kircher. We know Kircher was writing about like the hollow earth and like right the the subterranean realms and all this stuff so there's like this whole thing and there's an alchemical door on the side of a freaking rock it's like what do you like what are you supposed to can you go into here like or is there something about right the stone similar to our boy here tell us tell us forest is like is, what's he guarding because right he he had some significance too yeah. young right clearly yeah because that was at his house right yeah, this was at that Bollingen, uh, Bollingen Tower. Yeah. That he well, and Jung, Jung also wore uh, the, his golden ring. Got a Braxis, no? Braxis, yeah. Um, which was, to him, that was the Christian god <laughs> and, and Satan um, unified into one being, uh, which is really... And he goes over that in the Red Book and stuff, and it's really trippy. And so that's very monist, you know? To not have the duality, to to have them unified into one, like primal cause. Um, and I don't know if you've read about Philemon, who's in the Red Book. Also, you ever looked into that? Uh, the uh, he's a he's like an entity. Mm -hmm. Fill me in. I, I've I've heard that name before. I'm pretty sure I've Phil heard of him. Philemon. Yeah. Um, the Philemon. What is like? Um, Jung's guru, anima, his, or something like that. What do you call his it? Teacher? No, no. He he's more than that. He's he's almost like a um, like like a guru, like a saint or something that he fought. He's like a ma a magical. He's a magician, uh, almost like a hermit type figure. Uh, but he takes form, so he'll take like the form of like some crazy creature or something, and he leads Jung um, through his visions and dreams. Uh, and Jung like would write like odes to Philemon and stuff. And like, it's really, it's really trippy stuff. I mean, he's Very... not playing. 
Very. Who who was the one with the inner demon? Was that Socrates? Oh, with the daemon, yeah, Is yeah, that, that was Socrates. That, right? Yeah, all the Platonists and most of the Greeks will say they have a because they thought that your your daemon was the thing, like a creature almost or an entity that ties you to matter. Mm-hmm. So there's your soul and there's matter, like your body, and there's something in between those two, and that's your daemon basically uh, in Platonism and. Really quick, bro. I don't know if you do. You know what the what the symbol to cinnabar looks like, bro? To cinnabar, like an alchemy. Yeah. Um, no, honestly, let me look it up. Oh, you're gonna look it up. Oh, damn, that's crazy. That's weird, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cinnabar, bro, is like right the like at the core of alchemy, and then here it is, like what? Yeah. So. It kind of looks like I don't know a thirty-three. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So again, I don't know. Right, you have all these secret societies that use the thirty-three. You had Christ that died at thirty-three. You have thirty-three vertebrae. You have all these. Di- just the God is um, the word God appears thirty-three times in Genesis too. There you go. You have the Globus Crucifer, which back again to oh, the. By city. the way, it, in the Jewish Torah. It appears 32 times. Interesting. And so when Francis Bacon and the boys were doing the King James Bible, they added another one. They threw in another little extra God oh. and made it 33 on purpose. So it proves that it's on purpose. I mean, it's, I think we all know it's on purpose anyway. But for anyone who's like, oh, that's just, you know, like uh, unconscious or that just, you know, synchronicity, like, no. They the the Torah has thirty two the Christian Old Testament done up by Bacon who was like straight up you know uh, probably the founder of Freemasonry. Do you believe it, that? It, it could be. I mean, Mahal thought that. So, do you believe that that theory though, bro? That that King mm. James was surrounded by right, like the whole Baconian theory. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, I'll, I'll, we can get into that. Um, so Bacon did write not write but you know translated um directly from aramaic and hebrew and so on into english and standardized the english language uh, with the king james bible for fact we know bacon was put in charge of that project so he oversaw you know a committee of translators like the best of the best that he had brought in and he was given the task Hey, you gotta put this together. That we know that's like historical fact. We know that for sure. Um there's other stuff like him founding Freemasonry, him you know, being Shakespeare, things like that, um, which are speculative, possible. Um, but we do know that he he definitely put together the Bible. But yeah. him being Shakespeare, I I think that's very possible. I mean, there's so much trippy stuff with Shakespeare. I don't, I don't know if you, I know you've read Secret Teachings, but um, it's it's pretty crazy. It's wild. But, it's like yeah, too like, much. It's that's another much. one of those theories where you got to read it like a piece at a time because it's so much information just being thrown yeah. at you at one time that you're just I mean, like. I, I could run. I could run down a few things just real quick on that about how Shakes how sketchy Shakespeare is as a as a historical figure as being like the guy who wrote all the plays 
you know, he uh, was the owner of the Globe Theater and that all, you know, that guy. I mean, for example, the um, the town Stratford where, in England where Shakespeare is from, um, they didn't have any schools that are like notable, like high level of education schools where he could have been educated the way you would have had needed to been um to be shakespeare and there are some of these where i'm like okay like genius could account for this you know mm-hmm. where it's like okay Jimi hendrix didn't go to art school he was a that prodigy yeah, yeah yeah it doesn't mean he wasn't Jimi hendrix but well we can get to that it's not just his education um this one's trippy there's only six examples of shakespeare's handwriting at all um three of those are in his will and all six are his signature. So there's nothing outside that. That's in his personal handwriting by Shakespeare. That's crazy. There's no mention or evidence of a library, personal library owned by Shakespeare. So in his will, we have his will. In his will, there's no like, I bequeath to you my tomes of books, you know, that I've been studying. I mean, that's amazing. There's no personal library. Uh, it's rumored that his daughter was illiterate. That's another one, which is like, how could your dad be Shakespeare? And mm-hmm. even though you're a woman, I understand you're a woman and, you know, hundreds of years ago, but still, like, dad's Shakespeare and didn't, didn't want you to read his books or something. <laughs> um, he never starred in one of his own plays, which at the time was, like, crazy at the, at the time back then, if you were writing the play, you were the star of the play. Basically, you would give, you would give yourself the part. Um, but you know, you could say that that one, okay, maybe he wasn't a good actor or something because he played the ghost in Hamlet, which is funny because uh, Hamlet's supposed to be his dead son. Um, maybe he, and, maybe he was a little retarded, right? Maybe he was. Right? Could have been, Clinton. yeah. <laughs> but um, there's I could just run through a few more. Because I read Secret Teachings recently, so I got them. Yeah. I got them fresh. Go ahead, go um, ahead. He, uh... And now he's got his own song Cause he's the chosen one Yes, he is the chosen one Go buy a copy at Chosenone.com Chosenone.com Go visit Chosenone.com It's easy to remember If you just sing along Chosenone.com Go visit Chosenone.com a bunch of his friends, like there's a guy named Ben Johnson, um, who's like a contemporary author with Shakespeare and was friends with William Shakespeare. And he says on record that he knew very little Latin, very little Greek, uh, no Spanish or Danish or anything like that. But in the works, he's showing, he's making puns on these other languages. He's showing like a, a familiar, familiarity with foreign languages and foreign places as if he, you know, he's been to Denmark, he's been to Spain, you know, and in like, this is some random dude. Um, so 
you know, when you're talking about it being Bacon, who Bacon is like well-traveled for sure, extremely well-educated. He's in like the royal courts. I mean, who's more likely? Um, there's a few more like Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's heirs in his will did not benefit financially from his works or take part in the first publications of his works, which are called the folios. So they didn't even in, in his will and afterwards they weren't getting royalties and, you know, things like that from his work, which is like, why would they not be getting that? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a few more, but. So uh, was he a real person or not? What do you, what are your, what's your opinion? Probably a real person. Um, and what would they benefit from? occulting and like right occulting it it actually being bacon what's that other guy that that they also talk about perhaps being shakespeare too geez he was like an earl of something or other what's his name anyways Mm. one of these one of these other guys forget his name anyways there's like this dude on youtube i forget his name too that goes hard in the paint on like this whole baconian the 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 triple towel and all that stuff and like when they take his 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 covers and they do like this whole geometric line and and taking the line and it points down to the e yeah Yeah. for anyone interested um you know read the secret teachings thing and go check out some stuff on you there's it's endless rabbit hole and there's ciphers included yes um there's uh what else is there i mean there's there's stuff about uh, puns on bacon and hogs and ham, um, all kinds of crazy stuff that point to Shakespeare being some sort of uh, like, you know, mythological char- character almost, you know, someone who was historical, who just, you know, they pinned bacon's uh, writings on. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know what you really gain from doing that. I'm trying to think. And, yeah. Cause yeah. You know, I think that, so I think Bacon was Bacon. I think Shakespeare was Shakespeare. And I think that, and and it's difficult to pinpoint because you're talking about a guy who could, you could say, and you could argue single-handedly transform the English language as we know today. Okay. Without a doubt. Yeah. And prior, yeah. prior to the two of them. So the King James Bible and the works of Shakespeare, the English language was not standardized. So there were little dialects of where you you were from. And they all had little, it was very uh, fractured. And those two works in the 1500s served to standardize a common language through the Bible and Shakespeare that we could all build build on. I like, have you ever heard of the Shakespeare and D connection? Have you ever heard of that, the, that connection there? I've, yeah, I have heard, you know, again, these are, that that's a possibility too, that there's, that there's all kinds of the Garland brothers. Yeah. There, there could be several, uh, yeah, they could all be working together for all we know, you know, at the same, all of these guys, you know, bacon and D and who you name it. They were all spies, right? That was like really popular back then to be a freaking spy. Right. <laughs> and that that connection to me makes the most sense because there are those missing years of of William Shakespeare's life. So it's like where do you go for X amount of years? And it's like 
Vincent Bridges did, did work on this where he traced back like, oh, look, there's records here of these Garland brothers traveling around with John D and Edward Kelly, you know, yeah. doing seances. And that's how he was able to learn about the occult and all these different aspects. And it's like, damn, yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. But I do believe that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Yeah. I think Shakespeare is bacon, but we'll call it, we'll call it a <laughs> truth. Uh-huh. Because it's like, if, if let's say bacon was Shakespeare, then who wrote bacon? You know what I'm saying? Like this guy was that prolific, bro. Like he wrote all of bacon plus that that'd be crazy bro yeah it's and put together the king james bible and put that's a lot of writing you know what i'm saying i mean according to hall he hall theorizes that he may have founded freemasonry yes Uh, he we know that he was a freemason bacon we don't know much about it before his era so hall i don't know if he's just being like fantastical and would like that to be the truth <laughs> or whether that is the truth. it's hard to know with him i just which, read his biography by the way man like the hall which Crazy. one the the man of mysteries yeah master of the mysteries ma- yeah. Ma- yeah master of mysteries yeah I, I i didn't really like that one all that much i i feel like yeah. the, the guy's tone was very assholey i agree i was gonna <laughs> say that i agree that it kind of sounded like he didn't really like man like the yes um which is a weird thing i mean good information and it's kind of short so mm-hmm. yeah that's that why was, i had read it too because it was, it was a yeah, fast read like, i mean yeah he, he didn't really seem that great and yeah. the you have do, do you know which right of freemasonry bacon was behind because i know cagliostro was the egyptian right no let me see because I, I don't know yeah i think cagliostro was the was the I want to say Egyptian, right? But bacon, because you know, there's different sects and different arms, I guess, right? Of of the of all these secret societies, even they, they can't come up with like a, a solid ground to stand on as far as hmm. their beliefs go. It says that he was uh, associated with the Rosicrucians and Freemasonry. Um, doesn't really give a specific. Interesting. So here... it says that the, his book, the new Atlantis, which uh, Dr. Narco Longo did an audiobook of mm-hmm. on his channel. It says that in that Atlantis is ruled by Rosicrucians. Just <laughs> yeah, funny. Interesting. Well, that's the whole thing behind like Rosicrucianism believes in like the, the the ascended masters, right? Very theosophical, where there's like these beings that came down from whatever planet Zeno or whatever it is, and yeah. came down. It's like they're a superior race, and I mean, you know where that goes because yeah. it's like. We've seen that in history. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what I mean? <laughs> dude. If if anyone's interested in Rosicrucianism, uh, Rudolf Steiner has because he was a Rosicrucian um, earlier in his life. I'm sure later didn't really have much interest, but definitely initiated um, into those mysteries. And he has crazy writings on the rituals and practices of Rosicrucians. Um, 
really mystical Christian stuff. Really interesting. Uh, could be for people who maybe are a little scared of the dark arts, you know, um, and are, you know, want to maybe take a little more of a traditional route um, using the Bible and stuff instead of some old Renaissance books. Um, like, for example, he says that I think it's the first 14 lines, something like that. I have to pull it up uh, of the Gospel of John. He's kind of obsessed with the Gospel, the gospel of John um, because it's it's the most mystical if you read it. It's very strange. It starts off talking about the word, um, like the logos. And Steiner was all, apparently the Rosicrucians are just like, think the gospel of john is like where the secrets yeah. are really um, yeah because it's kind of tacked on um and he said that the, it's a rosicrucian practice to recite like at the same time every day whether it's before bed whether it's you know two o'clock in the afternoon doesn't matter same time every day and i'd have to go and read my notes uh here i'll look it up real fast just to i don't get this information wrong let's see yeah you don't you know <laughs> yeah we no should, point. Yeah. We should talk to like an expert on the whole Baconian thing. I want to hit up yeah, that guy cool. with uh there's a guy with a YouTube channel that I've seen that goes like super hard in the paint as far as like the whole Yeah. Rosicrucian aspect. Yo, can you still hear me? My freaking computer just like shut off. Yeah, I can hear you. Golly, dude. Yeah, I, I clean my, my setup. I'm like, yo, let me let me take out all the dust. Out of the the computer filters and all that stuff, treat my computer good. Right, it's the life force of the podcast. Essentially, that's where all the files and everything are at. And then I yeah. went ahead and I cleaned it, and I've been getting nothing but. Hopefully, this video looks good because right now I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, glitching out, bro, in the matrix right now. The way I see myself in the in the video, but. I found my found my notes. Yeah, hopefully it turns out all right. Uh. So the gospel of St. John is the most important gospel, according to Rudolf Steiner. He says it has the full power and light of God manifest in it, and that secret societies of the Middle Ages all studied it, so Templars, Cathars, Rosicrucians, you name it, as being very, very important. Steiner believes it holds knowledge of a future version of Christianity that will spread. Bible scholars believe it was from the second century and therefore could have been considered mystical poetry or Alexandrian philosophy, almost like Neoplatonism. Uh, so the Rosicrucians, according to Steiner, would meditate on the first 14 lines of the Gospel of John every day, and they believe that those lines had magical power. If you repeated them at the same time, day after day, you would begin to relive the Gospels and their and their events in your dreams so you you would go through like the stations the cross like the whole deal in your own dreams and they would he says they would see jesus being born and all the way up until his resurrection in your in your dreams <laughs> and i could read the i can read the first 14 lines if you want and it's, it's, pretty- it's interesting because right who John is and then what these Knights Templar allegedly had, which was the head of right. John the Baptist, right. Which was, 
perhaps prophesy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, it could be. Yeah. But, uh, Steiner even makes the case that um, John in the Bible is not mentioned until after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so Rudolf Steiner says that John is actually Lazarus initiated. So he Lazarus died, Jesus brings, brings him back, and now he's John, and John's delivering the goods from the other John side. John is JC's homunculi, bro. I said it. That's some necromantical shit saying, right there. That, you know, this is good stuff. What? what um, so... That's Steiner. What what Steiner is that? Like, where can people find that if they wanted That's to? From, uh, a book called Esoteric Cosmology by Rudolf Steiner. It's like a hundred fifty page book. It's really short, um, and it's a good overview. It gives a lot. It's different chapters on cosmology, as you would imagine, but also Christian mysticism, Rosicrucianism, heaven, astral world, chakras. You name it. Yeah, it's in there. Um, he he goes over like different forms of initiation, like I, I just talked about Lazarus dying, coming back, and and then John appears in in the Bible, um, and Steiner, and apparently these other secret societies believe that John was the initiated Lazarus. That's crazy, back. Uh, and that's why the Gospel of John has the the secret that has got the goods because he's. He's one of them. He's initiated. Well, and this makes right the Manichaeans, the the Cathars, the Bogomils, all these people that worshipped John the Baptist, right? Yeah, like, exactly. yeah. wow, that's wild, dude. And the the yeah. idea of what baptism represents, yeah. like you're being I, born again. Sure, and I think we talked about that um, baptism, possibly according to Rupert Sheldrake. Um, not a signified but literally was a near-death experience so it was a, it was a drowning mm-hmm. that's trippy but yeah like you're saying worshiping john you know they, they they saw him as an initiate like a follower of jesus who died came back was led through that by jesus himself and learned the mysteries uh you know and initiates in ancient times would be put into a coffin you know they, they would sim- they would do this sort of and they you know kind of do that with like skull and bones and things like that um but they the would put templar you in- allegedly too had yeah. a ritual where they would die for three yeah. days right sure and they would uh so initiates in ancient times would be put into a coffin for days and their soul would leave the body and go to the astral world and see all kinds of crazy mystical stuff and people uh steiner even uh says that it's possible that there was like a magi or some sort of person who is like molding you like your astral body while you're out of it almost like massaging like turning you into you know like a, a uh initiate what? uh perfecting you while while you're away um which is really trippy but then you would come back and the, you know the person would be initiated you would have left the body sort of realize your uh, immortality or whatever have you seen all this crazy stuff and then come back. Uh, and, and an interesting thing to tie that into one of our later subjects is that 
um, you know, they always say that there's been no mummies found in the pyramids. But Bro. in the king's chamber, what is there? There's a massive coffin. Box, yeah. With Yeah, box. With nothing in it. No dead people. Why? Because people were being initiated in the Great Pyramid. So that the initiates would be put in there in like this energy harnessing massive pyramid uh, full of quartz um, and ascend basically. They would just go go off into space and come back. And that's why there's no actual mummies because these people weren't actually dying there. They weren't actually being literally buried there. They were uh, symbolically dying there. Symbolically being buried there. And this is, we'll get into our next thing. Who, you know, how many people have had those experiences in the pyramids? You have Alexander the Great went to the pyramids. Crowley. He had, he, he had crazy stuff happen. You have Crowley who went to the, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, uh, and had the Book of the Law delivered. And you have Napoleon. Hold on, hold on, bro. Before, before we go there. Read yeah. the read the first. Wait, you said fourteen, fifteen lines. You said. Yeah, I'll read them for you. Uh, so John, chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's it. I wonder what that reads like in the original. That's a good question. You know, uh, and it, it is tricky, even even in its current form, is like, yeah, you know, the one, the word is, you know, man, and you're just like, what? Like, very and, platonic. And it, yeah, it is very Neoplatonic, which, it, like I said, they they say that it came from second century Alexandria, which is where the Neoplatonists where it was going down and Kabbalah was forming at the same time in the same place. So, cause one of the things that's always interested me was like with the John of revelation and mm-hmm. like how that was John. And by the way, Juan is another version of John. So I guess yeah. you could, right. So we're talking about John, so John on John yeah. podcast. <laughs> Doesn't sound as good, but yeah, that's also people have sometimes called me John uh, throughout my life, but Right. You had the whole idea of the book of Revelation, even though it wasn't it was a different John. But now that you're saying this idea of like, oh, the initiated versus the uninitiate, it's like, wow, there's kind of something there, too. It's like, what if this dude, this other John was the kind of 
potentially even the same people in some some way, shape, or form, right? Let's, uh, let's think outside the box. Let's, let's throw the traditional timeline out of the, because that's like, that, that, that's one of the things about the Bible where it's like, oh, let's, let's, let's disregard all this crazy mystic raising people from the dead and all that stuff. It's like, oh, but you got to stick to this timeline, bro. This person was, yeah, come on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, by the way, Lazarus, just to put a little support on what I said earlier, the only gospel that mentions the miracle of raising Lazarus is the gospel of John. And I think it's the last thing that happens in that gospel too. Wait, what? Say that again. So the raising of Lazarus from the dead happens in the gospel of John. That's, that's where it's found in the Bible. Um, And it's not found elsewhere. Interesting. So there's, there's something very alchemical and very cryptic. Right. To, to that. Huh? Yeah. And apparently, according to Steiner, uh, all the secret societies, especially the Christian-influenced ones, so the Cathars, the Rosicrucians, and what have you, were onto this like, like it was nobody's business. They were all they were all into Gospel of John. And I don't know a lot about Lazarus, but uh, Lazarus, but. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Oh, man, this is crazy because I just Googled. I'm trying to pull up the plates of where you take the bones of the king and yeah. you put it in the sarcophagus or the coffin. And then the king writes in pieces and then the king comes back. And I and I I Googled the resurrecting king plate and look at mm-hmm. what came up. Lazarus of Bethany. Oh, damn. That's crazy. Because, again, and I'm not. Because some people will be like, oh, well, there's actually writings about how people would alchemize, like, quite literally everything, like any ancient text. So it got to the point where during, like, the Renaissance time, they were taking all allegorical and metaphorical stories and be like, oh, that's alchemy. Oh, and that's yeah. alchemy, too. And it's like, no, sometimes they're just stories and they're just, they're not alchemical in nature. But you just unlock like this whole thing in me where I'm like, wait a minute now, you know, it makes a lot more sense from the alchemical perspective of these plates showing certain things. And here it is in a in like a LARPing type of way where they're quite literally telling these stories, right? Like they're 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 acting them out in like this book, which is the Bible. Right. So like you take the alchemical allegories and you turn it into a story. And you hide those alchemical secrets within this story, if that makes any sense. Um, And, you know, in in the initiatory rituals of Freemasonry, for each degree, like you were just saying, acting these things out as, like, drama, uh, you watch a play. So in each degree of Freemasonry, you basically are watching a symbolic play. What? Act out, acted out by the brothers in Shakespeare. Front of you. Yeah, right. And then obviously you could tie in uh, like Shakespeare and all that uh, if you want. But you know that is they are initiatory, um, and there is drama, uh, and there is myth. Obviously, that all that just is myth, uh, and myth is not like a how we think of it today, where it's like, oh, that's just that's a myth. You know, it's it's far more deeper than than we could even imagine. What the f- bro? So 
and I think I can find the 12 keys of Valentine. Let me see if if he has the king where they bury him. You know what I'm talking about, where they bury the bones of the king and then he comes back out of the tomb in one piece. Let me see here. I want to find it now. The 12 keys of Basil Valentine. There you go. Let's see. Let's see. All right. So you have this very just weird stuff, man. Like, that's what I love about alchemy. It's so trippy, dude. So weird. And and it's like yeah. such a large part of history, right? So you have again this this is not the one I'm looking for, but they they in some depictions they resurrect. And I think it's an Atlantan Fugians too by Mayer. It's found a found Masonic ritual. It says Masonic ritual is a full body experience offering total sensual immersion. The initiations are not unlike visiting a modern-day IMAX theater. However, <laughs> the, the latter experience is synthetical, whereas Masonic immersion is organic. Dramatists of the ancient world understood this principle, that theater was not about entertainment, but initiation, religion, catharsis, mm. and, and psychological development. The creators of Masonic ceremonies also understood this, and they succeeded in converting the theater into a Masonic temple. Let's go. The Cinemagicians, yeah. hard at yeah. work. Absolutely. Um, and you watch things unfold in front of you, basically. This was look, this was the OG alchemical hot box. I'm going to show you right now. Hold up. So that's, at, that's Atlanta Fugins right here. This dude's hot boxing, bro. Damn. That's Damn, crazy. dude. This was the OG theater right there. So, and these plates, you have. And this is a really interesting one, too, because with these plates, there was music that you yeah. could also play with, with. Right. Look, Young used this emblem too, this plate. But you're just like, con like helping me connect all these dots in my mind right now, as far as like this whole initiation and how, right, mm -hmm. you have magical names. Here it is right here. So the Typhon kills Osiris. Osiris, right? That's an S. Not by the C and disperses his limbs, but famous. God, I hate these things. Uh, I don't know what that is right there, but gather them together. Man, that's trippy, yeah. The, the initiatory uh, burial. I could read you the stages of initiation rituals that are found throughout uh, like Christian secret societies, according so to Stein. I think here there's one of them where they take his body apart. They oh they take right here, yeah. So right here in the background, it his body's taken apart, and you can't really see him on these because they're not that well. But right, he's the king, and just just what a weird thing. Like what a weird, what a weird. Yeah. Like what? How how do you even like, bro? I go up to you and I go, hey, dude, you're an artist. Draw me. Getting this. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, what I'm saying? Like, yeah. make me. How do you exp How do you even begin to. Exp he's going to be a king in a coffin. And then in the back, he's going to be dismembered. And then there's going to be somebody picking that up. And then there's going to be some people, you know, like in, in the back behind there. And they're going to be doing, like, what? what in yeah. That world? That is great. Well, Plotinus um, says in the Enneads that 
if you were to be tortured, like if you were to be torn apart like that, it sounds like they're sort of symbolically representing what he's saying. He said, if you were being tortured, your body was just being torn apart in some sort of medieval torture device that, and you know, he's pretty hardcore philosopher. He's like, that shouldn't matter at all because your body's just a shadow of, of your soul. You know, it's just like an image, a symbol of ah, what you're real. So it's not yeah, easy to say, but um, it's possible that they are representing something, something like that idea. Yeah. Okay. Like you, you go ahead and take that then, bro. So here, I'll give you some of the stages that you have dreams of in this Steinerian Gospel of John uh, initiation. So the first one is you'll be washing somebody's feet in your dreams. And these all have esoteric meanings. So they're not just things that happened that Jesus did. They're things that you enact, reenact in your dreams, sort of incited by this uh, the first 14 verses uh, or lines and you'll be washing someone's feet. And so this is like an esoteric law that you're learning. And it's that uh, it's not just humility. Like most people think it's um, the esoteric law that higher things can only exist because of lower things. So it's like a consubstantiality, meaning there's both things are dependent on each other to exist at all. Um. And so Jesus can't exist without his disciples and without us, like without mankind. Um, and then we can't exist without him kind of thing. And so we're all sort of codependent. And that, that is washing the feet. It's like an esoteric initiation. Um, and then you move on to the scourging, which is when uh, you're basically being tortured, you're being whipped and things like that. Um, and that's, you know, becoming fearless and courageous and heroic. Um, and you have a, a vision of that happening to you, which gives you a wider sense of uh, love and feeling of living within the body sort of thing. Uh, then you go on to a dream where you have the you know, famous crown of thorns placed on you. And that represents like a rational stoicism, uh, meaning not just stoicism like by brute force, but rational stoicism. So you're able to break things down logically and say, okay, well, this isn't a big deal because of X, Y, and Z, you know, be gone kind of thing. Uh, It's like a mental stoicism. Uh, Disassociation, uh, saying yes to life and being moral. Uh, and And then a very serious event occurs during the stage, which involves the appearance of, the guardian of the threshold, which is an astral double of yourself, much like a holy guardian angel and like uh, Crowley's type system uh, or something like that, which appears in physical form before you. So you got the crown of thorns on this thing, this doppelganger the of dweller you, of the abyss. Yeah. Which Jung in the red book, it's, he calls it his other eye and it's a, it's a shadow appears to him appears to you in your dream in physical form and you and it's like disgusting it's like the most like it's like a zombie like hideous creature and you have to master it in order to avoid insanity then you move on to the bearing of the cross which is a feeling of oneness and association 
with the whole earth and everything on it. So it's like the ultimate, the ultimate burden of the world. You're literally Atlas in Greek mythology, right? Bearing the world. Then your next dream, these are all initiatory dreams that you have basically in these secret societies, um, is a mystic death. So the initiate is bearing all the suffering in the world, like Atlas, like Christ, uh, and becomes aware of death. And they move closer to death, and eventually an inner light comes into awareness. And Steiner compares that light to uh, sound. So he says that this like inner light, this like reignition of your soul that happens um, through that initiation, is similar to when you plug your ears. And it's not like when you plug your ears, you can't hear anything. You just hear stuff that's happening inside, you know? You hear your heart beating, you hear like your stomach moving, and you hear, may hear it ringing or something. Um, and he says it's the same thing with like your consciousness. That when you shut off the, you know, you've bear, you're bearing the entire world and you sort of shut off your, the outer world and you move inwards, but it's not like nothing happens. The opposite happens. So it comes from within now. The world sort of ignites in front of you on, on the interior, the sort of astral world. Um, let's see like and he he kind of steiner at least compared that to numbers too which is like a pythagorean thing that when you're approaching zero you think that the number line's going to be over but then it just goes into negative numbers and keeps going (laughs) yeah (laughs) that kind of thing uh and oh so your next initiation your next dream is your entombment where you're freed from the body and you're among the stars you're just like flying astrally uh and you're literally um you identify as the earth so you are the earth and then the planets are like your contemporaries they're like your buddies and so then you really start to take on like that astrological alchemical like planetary influence becomes real unus mundus right you're the earth and they're like right next to you kind of thing uh and then the last obviously the last initiation dream in these societies is the resurrection uh so steiner says that it's that's almost impossible to describe in language but the that the initiate emerges with the power of healing and um things like that you know obviously like an awareness of immortality and so on yeah that, it's trippy stuff i mean wow dude and and that that's rosicrucianism right that's that's mystical christian mis- yeah that's Christian mysticism. Christian yeah. mysticism. Yep, yep, yep. Wow. Three Rosicrucians, Cathars, Templars, all, they were all practicing that kind of dream initiation, uh, astral initiation, I guess you could call it. Uh, but they would set you up, basically, ritually, to have these dreams, experience these things, and through the stages of Jesus' life, you would learn like these esoteric principles and laws and actually live them out as experience and not just dogma. So that's what makes it mystical. And so, and this was, this was activated through this reading of, of the, the first, what did we say? 14 lines. Yeah. Gospel of John. So that's how you knew you were doing it, right? Because you would do this every day, same time, same thing mm-hmm. over and over again. And then you'd go yeah. to sleep that night and then if you had one of these dreams, you knew you were on the right path or the right track. Yeah. You'd start off with the first one, or apparently you would see Jesus being born, 
in a dream and then you would sort of identify as Jesus from from then on whoa and and live out those things in in successive dreams and that was your initiation like full on like you learned everything you had to learn there isn't not a whole lot else you needed to be taught you know you lived it in you know, whatever that was maybe like 10 dreams or something I don't know. I wasn't counting, but something like probably that. twelve dreams. <laughs> All right, probably yeah, probably twelve dreams or seven dreams or something. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. And like I was saying earlier, in the pyramids, they were doing these sort of initiations in coffins, you know, entombing you, letting the mind just detach and fly around. And so all these historical characters that clearly had experiences in the pyramids like that look these guys look like they're having a great time and the this is called this is from manly p hall it's from i want to say it's either it's one of the three journals the horizon or the other ones not the all-seeing i don't think it's the all-seeing eye anyways (laughs) whatever but it's called the initiation in the king's chamber it's what you were talking about how maybe perhaps Mm this this place was used as a sort of metaphysical i think it was like a metaphysical a canon for like your soul so you would get loaded up in there and the reason i say that is because i did an episode 177 where my buddy luke he tell you know he's just sitting down and telling us about all these different uh, trips that he's taken and one trip in particular that he just recently took um, Mm. earlier this year where he was in the king's chamber at two in the morning and they were just hanging out in there right looking around and they started chanting and they they would get in the box and the box vibrates right because you're you're not allowed to how many tones do anything while you're in there? If you have like a strict tour guide, but the tour guys that he goes with are just like, you know, friends of his. So they let him do. Crowley rented it out. So times have changed. Yes. They they didn't even care back then. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's one of the things that I, that I talked to him about. I'm like, you know, Crowley was essentially prophesized to on, Mm -hmm in the king's chamber so what you were saying that these people throughout history some some of the more significant people throughout history right might maybe could have gone through a sort of initiation and then napoleon bonaparte being one of the ones that yeah had also i did not i didn't even know that he went there oh yeah yeah pull that up he so obviously um Napoleon took took Egypt. So he, he's a wild man. He went down and he's like, all right, I'm just going to take Egypt. I'm going to bring all my scholars, like translate a bunch of stuff, get everything. Uh, the Turk, it was tur- under Turkish control. And so he said, let's get the Turks out. And in, in the process, it's going to create a problem for England. who was like his enemy. Uh, because it, somehow I forgot, maybe they knew the Nile or something to get to some other colonies that they had. Um, but he was like, yeah, this is going to screw England. I'm going to be in the middle. And it's just cool to have Egypt because obviously Alexander the Great uh, took Egypt too. He's a hero of his. Um, and in the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, 
you could look it up. He had a mystical experience where he has a famous quote about it. Something like I, I can't, you know, something like I can't put it into words or something like that. Um, and he doesn't describe it, which is terrible. I wish he did, but he does not describe his experience in the great pyramid that I know of, but there, he, he does say that something happened that was like profound. Um, and yeah, that's fascinating. And then, you know, he, in, in his whole life had all kinds of, he had ghost stories. He, he believed that he was like the culmination of legends and prophecies that told of like him coming to sort of rule the world or rule Europe. Um, he had uh, ghost stories and all kinds of paranormal type things as well that are super interesting. So this quote here, it doesn't, uh, it's not a quote. I'm trying to find the quote that where he talked about the little red man. So the red man stops the last efforts of the tyrant death offering the only means of escape from his exile. And so allegedly, mm-hmm. right. The, what we wanted to get it, what, what we wanted to get into after all this time <laughs> at yeah. the very beginning was the myth of Napoleon and the red man. And it's interesting because I'm not sure. Does does Young describe the devil when he meets him? Satan? does he describe what he looks like? Does he call him the Red Man? The Red Rider, yeah. The Red Rider, yeah. yeah. So uh, he's, he's like a ginger, like Viking, like massive <laughs> ginger guy, uh, who like gleams red. Yeah. The Red Man appeared for the first time to General Bonaparte then in Egypt, the evening before the Battle of the Pyramids. Napoleon, attended by several officers, was riding past one of those monuments of antiquity when a man wrapped in a red mantle came out of the pyramid and motioned him to alight and follow him. Bonaparte complied, and then they went together in the interior of the pyramid. Oh, my God. After an an hour had elapsed, the officers uh, became uneasy at the long absence of their commander. They were just on the point of entering the monument in quest of him when he came forth with a look of evident satisfaction. Before this interview with the red man, he had steadfastly refused to give battle, but now he issued orders to prepare immediately for attack, and the following day he gained the victory of the pyramids. So, this little red man that supposedly Bonaparte had encountered mm-hmm. right napoleon Bonaparte was was born in corsica an island etc etc the 19th century guidebook observed the corsicans believe in the mal Malochio or evil eye and in witchcraft as sturdily as their ancestors of the 16th century while napoleon did not believe in witchcraft he was prone to more everyday superstitions and has been credited with some f- fantastical beliefs so Josephine, right, brought him good luck. He became accustomed to associate the idea of her influence with every piece of good furniture. It's almost like a feng shui type of thing going on here. Napoleon's sure. lucky star. We have mm-hmm. relates to Monsieur Pass, who claimed to have heard it directly from General upon the siege, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see it up there? That is my star. There it is shining before you. It has never left me. I see it in awe. Great. I wonder if he's talking about like, the North Star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It's funny. Yeah. He just thinks it, he thinks it's his. Yeah. It's like when you wish upon a star, right? Like that whole thing. I see nothing in exile. Napoleon referred to his lucky star in a conversation. Omens uh, regarded some incidents as omens. Carried a miniature portrait of Joseph, uh, Josephine. When the glass on the portrait accidentally broke, Napoleon turned pale with dread and said, either my wife is very ill or she is unfaithful. Yikes. So numbers and dates. Uh, Napoleon disliked Fridays in the number 13. He would never begin a journey on a Friday or the 13th of a month. On the other hand, he regarded some dates particularly auspicious. After winning the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805, he considered December 2nd one of his lucky dates, especially since his coronation had occurred. So this guy, bro, this guy was like going hard in the paint. This guy was going to take over the world, wasn't he? Yeah. So the Red Man. This is crazy. Sotson said that Napoleon periodically saw a phantom called the Red Man. Here's a summary of what the tales reported in February 1815 before Napoleon made his escape from Elba. The gentleman from... All right, so... That looks long. But I, I know a lot of it just off the top of my head. So um, wait, so the at the pyramid wasn't the first time that he had... No. No, so this is even more interesting. Not only was were the pyramids... the not the first time that he saw the red man, but the red, he wasn't even the first person to see the red man. So there was French royalty who had encounter, who had encounters with this red man, this little homunculus, like gnome, they described him as like a gnome in all red kind of thing. Um, who would come to them and just be like giving them prophecies, like making deals with them, all kinds of typical, you know, sprightly things. Um, and I forgot the lady's name, uh, Catherine or something like that. Some French, uh, aristocrat Royal, um, had encounters with him too and ended up dying. Uh, I think her husband died and there was, he prophesied a bunch of, uh, like horrible things for the, before the revolution. And then he started, the red man started, um, reporting to Napoleon, appearing to him like out of nowhere, he would just like pop up and, uh, he made deals with Napoleon. He said, like, you're going to have 10 years of victory, 10 years of success. And then Napoleon's like, can I get another five? You know, like when the 10 let, is let up. Me, let me let me read this. So the following singular story was circulated almost immediately after the fall of Napoleon. And with credits obtained ready belief, the gentleman from whom this curious communication was received heard it related with the following particulars on the first day of January at Paris, where he spent the whole of the winter. The 1st of January, 1814, early in the morning, Napoleon shut himself up in his cabinet. Let me zoom into this. In his cabinet, bidding Count Mole, Moly, then Counselor of State, to remain in the next room and to hinder any person whatever from, the troubling, from troubling him while he was occupied in his cabinet. He had not long retired to his study when a tall man dressed in, in red applied to Moly, or Mole, pretending that he wanted to speak to the emperor. He was answered that it was not possible. I must speak to him. Go and tell him that it is the red man who wants him, and he would admit me. Awed by the imperious and commanding tone of the strange personage, Moli obeyed reluctantly and trembling, executed his dangerous errand. Let him in, said Bonaparte sternly. Prompted by curiosity, Mole 
listened at the door and overheard the following curious conversation. So not again, if we're, if we're to believe this mole guy and he wasn't alone in this apparition, if you will, this thing, yeah. right. But here he's tall. So I don't know. Maybe he's a big homunculus. Like, I don't know. Maybe well, no, so he could be like appearing differently to different people. True. Kind of uh, so, the red man said, this is my third appearance before you. The first time we met was in Egypt at the Battle of the Pyramids. So that one thing where he had disappeared for a little right. bit. The second after the Battle of Wagram, I then granted you four years more to terminate the conquest of Europe or to make a general peace, threatening you that if you did not perform one of these two things, I would withdraw my protection from you. Now I, now I am come for the third and last time to warn you that you have now but three months to complete the execution of your designs or to comply with the proposals of peace offered you by the allies. If you do not achieve the one or accede to the other, all will be over with you. So remember it well. Napoleon then expostulated expostulated with him to obtain more time on the plea that it was impossible in, sh in so short a, pay a space to reconquer what he had lost or to make peace on honorable terms. Do as you please, said the red man, but my resolution is not to be shaken by entreaties nor otherwise, and I go. He opened the door. The emperor followed, entreating him, but to no pr purpose. The red man would not stop any longer. He went away, casting on his imperial majesty a contemptuous, Look and repeating in a stern voice, three months, no longer. Napoleon made no reply, but his fire eyes darted fury, and he returned sullenly into his cabinet, which he did not leave the whole day. Such were the reports that were spread in Paris three months before the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte, where they had, where they caused an, an unusual sensation and created a superstitious belief among the people that he had dealings with infernal spirits and was bound to fulfill their will or perish who the red man really was has never been known but that such a person obtained an interview with him seems to be placed beyond a doubt even the french papers when bonaparte was deposed recurred to the fact and remarked that his mysterious visitant's prophetic threat had been accomplished what the heck bro yeah that that's not in your uh high school history book <laughs> So other versions of the legend say the red man advised Napoleon against the invading of Russia and appeared to him in his coronation and on the eve of the battle of Waterloo. However, the stories say more about French. Oh yeah. Down in the next paragraph, you'll see what I was talking about. That it, the same little red known thing. Medici. Medici's other people. <laughs> like it was not just Napoleon. He, Napoleon was, Probably the most notable, obviously, because he's Napoleon. Bro, I know who but the red man was. Yeah. Um, and if you look up, look up. This no, was the no, red man. No, forget the Mothman. <laughs> look up. All right. This, this is way better. Look up the Nain Rouge. So N A I N space I N. I N. Rouge. R O U G E. R-O-U-G. Yeah, that one. 
So the Nain Rouge is literally a red, like, gnome devil in Michigan folklore. What? Yes. And it's like the same little same little a type thing. of hobo goblin. Hobgoblin, yeah. Or hop, yeah. My bad. I'm, I'm retarded. There's such thing as a hobo goblin though, right? Probably. I've seen a few. Hold on, I have to I have to Oh no, it's hobgoblin. Oh my god, I've been reading this wrong my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! All right. Representation of Nine Rouge used to promote Detroit Beer Company, the Detroit Dwarf. Interesting. And Detroit, it's French. Ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is wild. See, and was see that- also Mothman. So we're talking about. All right, here, this ties it all together. So you have the Nain Rouge, which is part of Michigan folklore. Like, someone in Detroit knows exactly what that is. Just like someone in New Jersey knows exactly what the Mothman is. Um, The Nain Rouge is in Michigan. Michigan was part of the Louisiana Purchase, where America bought that land from France. Who was the ruler of france when we bought louisiana no napoleon no as we bought michigan from napoleon and they literally have this little red gnome demon running around detroit bro just saying that's hobgoblin escaped to michigan well, it, 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 dude, it kind of ties in with like the whole Bach Tower thing where like the little gnomes were seen, you know, at, shortly after the tower had been built, kind of sort of like in the area. Like right. that's such a, a bizarre, bizarre yeah. thing. And then Detroit was the center of the world, you know, up until the 60s, um, you know, for 30, 40 years with the automotive industry. And Crowley went to Detroit. There's a book about Crowley in Detroit yes. um, by, I think, Kaczynski, Richard Kaczynski, his biographer. Um, there's all kinds of trippy ties. But yeah, the Louisiana Purchase was from Napoleon, and we bought all that territory from him because he needed to fund those wars. That's why it was so cheap. Whoa, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a crazy connection. So what do you think it was? What do you what do you speculate this little red oh. man was? Like do you think it was uh like a proje- proje- it reminds yeah. me of like the 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 unknown speaker, the shadow man during the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Right. From, yeah, Manly P. Hall talks about. Yeah, yeah that one's tricky too. Um yeah, to me it is like a sort of haunting archetypal figure that haunts the collective unconscious uh and when it needs to make itself known it makes itself known do you think that's his hat on the french the, the coat of arms could be See, it's got like a little freaking red hat yeah that's so see you got the little red hat here and the one here and the all like an eye that's like an eye right there wow bro dropping the hammer 
with the Napo- the what can we dub this the Napoleon homunculi Napoleon is there like another word for Napoleon that we can use that I'm like Napoleon the Bonaparte wow. homunculus this is crazy dude reading about the Nain Rouge it's been seen in Michigan since the 1700s so before the Louisiana Purchase, then. Before, yeah. Yeah. So what it's if crazier? That's not like I thought it was like modern folklore. This is going on at like the same time. So what if again it was like some? So they call it the demon of the straight. Like what if something happens? What if some, what if it attaches itself to him? Or them, but why would it visit other people before? You know what know. I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard of this before, dude. I'd never heard of of. I know you had texted me about it, but I didn't look any more into it. And yeah, you brought it full circle. It's crazy. I try my best. <laughs> so, dude, you want to add anything else before we get out of here? This is great. We got a lot of stuff we talked about. <laughs> Descartes. Yeah, we were all over the place. We talked about Descartes, Neoplatonism, Devil yeah. Automatons. We got Alchemy. We got Infant Jesus of Prague. We got some young in there. We got the Red Book. Yeah, dude. Want to add Red anything man. else? Want to leave the people <laughs> with something before we go? Um, No. Uh, I can't think. I mean, anything too interesting that's like. Hmm. It's all good, bro. I'm yeah. going to be doing an episode on the. On that gate. So if you want to join me on that, it's going to be with, with homie Romy. Yeah, I'm I'm in. I'm in for anything. Just let me know. I'll be there. Because that's a, it's a deep dive, bro. I'll send you the name yeah. after. but I'm going to be in Kissimmee on Sunday. Uh, let me know. I, I got some. I probably else. won't. Yeah, I probably won't be able to stop. See, you, just saying, I'm oh. being busy at gem show. Whack. At Osceola, um, whatever you call it, I don't yeah, know, Osceola Park or something. Um, yeah, there's a huge like wholesale gem show that we go to. Uh, well, if if I go, can you get me in with you as like a vendor with you? Yeah. All right, I'll let you know then. Uh, see what time I have something on Sunday, but we'll talk about it. But right. as always, everyone, make sure to uh, once Longo's book is out, I'm sure I don't know if he's going to want to plug it or not. But if he does, I'll post the link if it's out by the time this is out, whenever. But make sure to follow the show, tjojp.com at the one on one podcast on all social media platforms. If you're on YouTube. Twitter, Instagram, wherever you are, comment, like, subscribe, leave a five-star review. And as always, Professor Longo came, he saw, (laughs) he conquered, he dropped the homunculus hammer on us and some esoteric initiatory knowledge. Yeah. All right, brother. Thank you again. And as always, everyone, see you on the other side.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.